But now we don't have any value. Hey, it's your death sentence for this week. Uh, Langdon and Eden can't be here. They said something to me about how they don't like uh, the podcast or the audience, so they don't want to do this and hate you all. Um, so, it's just me this week, because we're talking about British stuff. And I think if you were trying to trap me in one of those, like, uh, nets that you have on the ground that you step on, and then it just, like, hoists you in the air, I think they have one in Star Wars. Uh, I don't know how those work, but if you're trying to trap me in one of those, what you'd do is you put uh, stuff about the southwest of England, you put Twin Peaks in there, you put cop shows, you put creepy occult stuff, you put, like, spooky pastoral English ghost stories in there, you put drugs in there, you put a lot of drugs in there. Um, And then I would walk into that net and you'd capture me for some reason. And that is essentially what uh, Tariq Goddard, who is here with us today, has done in book form. Because he, in addition to being the publisher of, for my money, the single best left-wing press in the whole world, sorry Verso, um, is also a very, very talented novelist and has written a book called Hi John the Conqueror, which is out now. It's fucking fantastic, folks. Um, and especially for me, who who is very... Um, who gets the... Uh, he gets the content probably a lot better than probably, unfortunately, our American listeners are going to get. Because this is about shit towns in the southwest of England, uh, which is surprisingly where I grew up, and it's my like specialist subject in the world. Um, so, um, Tariq, welcome to the show. And uh, hi, and how's, how's it going? And um... So far, so good. And that was, um, that was a wonderful warm-up <laughs> tribute. Thank you. I'm about to go on a tour that will be taking in some shit towns in the southwest of England. Oh, nice. I um, would, uh... would be very grateful if you could open every night with that. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. And yeah. it's very, very flattering and um, wonderful to know that we've been living parallel lives. Although yeah. I ought to make clear that this is a book that I think will probably work for people who lived in shit towns in the southwest of the United States or, in fact, anywhere. And that, as a disclaimer, I'm not actually from the southwest of England. I, I only live here. Oh, where where are you from in the southwest then? Um, I'm from, I, well, I moved around a lot because my parents yeah. were, were Navy. All right. So I was born in Cornwall, but grew up in Dorset. So Brilliant, um, brilliant qualifications. Yeah. <laughs> I know what the book is all about. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do you know the town Sherborne? Of course I do, yeah. Yeah, Sherborne. I, I, I didn't... I'm it's not, quite quaint, though. I, I think you're being oh, a little yeah. bit hard on it to call it a shit town. It's... Yeah, it's a, it's a tourist town. And yeah. If you're... If you're it's, a, it's a rich people's tourist town and a mm. uh, public school, what Americans would call a private school, which yeah. is actually a more logical way of naming it. But mm. It, mm. it's a town for very rich people to either go on holiday to or send their kids on to boarding school in. And yeah, um, there's no doubting that it has a seedy underbelly because one of oh, my yeah. most vivid memories of being there last, 
um, when my last book came out, there's a little bookshop there that I went to sign about four oh, copies no of my yeah. then current book. I love that bookshop. And I got to the pub and my memory is that having asked for a gin and tonic, which is a fairly bourgeois tipple, um, it tasted of onions because they had used the same knife um, for the burgers on, on, on the lemon. So, you know, there, there is some grit in Sherbourne, I can test that. <laughs> which, uh, do you remember which pub you went to? I can't, but the outside of it was very um, decorous. It looked like a little castle or something. But oh, inside, no. it was pure Witherspoons. Yeah, it's, um, I haven't been back in about 15 years. <laughs> All right. But, um... Well, let me know when you do, and you can <laughs> take me on a hauntological walking tour of the place. Oh, it, it, well, it's not just hauntological, it's haunted. It's yes. No, it's got about a dozen ghosts. I, I've seen one. Um, what, <laughs> what, was that, what was that, the ghost of then? No idea. Just a grey shape moving around in a... Um, I used to work in an electronic shop, you know, right. like, like a little Dixon's. I, upstairs was a kind of warehouse, and I was up there getting stuff, and it was just, you know, just a... Ghosts love electric and electricity, don't they? It's yeah, yeah. there's definitely a relationship there. Anyway, that sounds like a verified sighting. Oh yeah. I also saw the um uh Beast of Bodmin there. Isn't that a large cat? Yeah, panther. Okay. Yeah. Not fun to see when you're just walking around the woods. No, and I so, expect all this happened without the help of LSD. Did not, yeah. Actually, never taken LSD. Uh, mushrooms was the thing there. And of course, the the organic alternative yeah. to uh, LSD's chemical. Yeah, um, which kind of brings us around High John Conqueror, doesn't it? Sure. Because that's about uh, for people like me when I was living in Sherborne, who just desperately want to get out of there any means necessary, and will therefore take any drug that's going. That is certainly an aspect of the book. You're right to bring yeah, that it's up. It's the um, jumping off point. Mm. I mean, I, let's just let's just kind of. I, I know it sucks to do the whole elevator pitch bit, sure. but let's just give give a little synopsis of what what it's about, so we can kind of jump off from there. Sure, well, I'll go with what look very, very um, inexpertly and clumsily. It's a novel set um, in twenty sixteen in the build-up to the Brexit referendum, near a nameless cathedral city in the southwest and the surrounding countryside. Um, concerning the disappearance of groups of teenagers from uh, local council estates, specifically one, um, then that these disappearances are absolutely inexplicable and appear to have a certain occultish dimension. And the story's told in the first person through the eyes of the chief investigating officer, um, Detective Inspector Balance. So that, 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 that's the brief context. Mm. And I think the, as back cover points out, the first clue which kind of sets Balance off down a rabbit hole which ends up I'm not going to say where it ends up. Mm. But the clue is people, it's kind of known that, quote, posh people are taking our kids. Yeah, it's the meeting point between um, class war and the supernatural, I suppose. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, which again, if, if you want to track, if you want to make me interested in something, that's a, a good way to start. Well, I think you're just, you know, you're talking about the chocolate box nature of these very genteel, pretty towns or cities that are locked on to extremely left behind and raw places. And there is always that tension. And obviously one side of the countryside is overrepresented in literature and the other hardly at all. And having come to live in the countryside as an outsider, although I have been here now for 14, nearly 15 years, but I'm still clearly not, you know, I could live here for 100 years and no one would ever confuse me for a local. But yeah. living here, I realised there was a much richer and more interesting story to be told than the usual kind of murder in the cloisters, mm. um, sub PG Woodhouse, Miss Miss Marple treatment, mm. that a lot of books set in rural Britain or about the countryside um, are written with the production values of and with that kind of very twee, unsubstantial, whimsical approach that I um, do, do not favour. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I call parts aside that like a big chunk of the book is gritty cop drama. Yeah, that that that's true. And I mean, I suppose if you didn't know where I was going with it, you might think you were reading a sort of realistic procedural treatment, um, adhering very close to to, to naturalism, almost documentary like. Mm. Yeah, which is good. Yeah, it's yeah I, I, I've never written, I'm not a crime writer mm. or someone that works within any one specific genre, certainly not crime or thriller. But because I wanted to write something very inventive and fantastical, because I'm asking people to believe that a sort of fungal plant growth that is found once every hundred years in the forest can make people literally dematerialise. Um, it's a bit of a spoiler, but that is a central plank of the book. And that leads the reader into a lot of places where they might be incredulous and slightly disbelieving or sceptical. And that's only the half of it, um, because this is a book that really lays on the mad shit thick and fast. <laughs> so oh, yeah. to do that in a way that's even, you know, slightly plausible, Um, I felt like I had to create as convincing a basis for that as possible. So to create a world that is very obviously and immediately identifiable as real and as prosaic and quotidian as possible, you know, rural England as people who live here actually find it, Um, Mm. rather than a sort of world of strange transcendental happenings. Um, but, But one way you, you know... Kind of like with The Exorcist, when you think you might be watching a documentary about a single mother or something, and then mm, fucking yeah. Satan appears in the attic. And, you know, I, I wanted something where the horror emerged and grew out of the story. And not just the horror, but the magical um, aspect too. And for me, the most effective way of doing that was to write a very realistic um, police procedural that these elements emerge out of. Yeah. And I think also because it's a political novel and mm. I've wondered for a while how I was going to do justice, the political upheavals of the last four or five years, how, how best to 
uh, approached them. And it was through creating an atmosphere. And they, so that, that all the politics is happening, but it's happening just slightly off stage. It's the atmosphere that the characters breathe in the book. Um, and again, I thought the best way of doing that was this police story rather than something that specifically and directly uh, de dealt with those events, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. I mean, one of the things, and you kind of, you cover this at sort of the start of book two. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, I'm, I'm like a dyed-in-the-wool commie here. You know, yes. like, I, don't, I don't like cops or the army or spies. Right. Yeah. If, you, if you were to look at my bookcase, it's full of like, Police mm. procedurals, uh, John Le Carre novels. I mean, John Le Carre's <laughs> Military histories. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That doesn't How do you explain that paradox, Gary? Uh, yeah, it sounds exactly. like you enjoy what you don't like too much. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah. There's a hell of a lot on the Second World War. You'd think I was a closet Nazi if you saw, saw my bookshelf. But, uh, um, look, I mean, again, <laughs> parallel lives. I would say that. The Second World War is rather overrepresented on, on my shelves. And there's certainly more of that than um, Marxist analysis of, you know, the economy yes. or whatever else. Yeah. Uh, so how, yeah, how, how, how does a, a commie, how does the left wing explain that pa paradox? Well, I, to, again, to be clear, I'm not a communist and I don't believe in a perfectible world. So although I'm on the left, I have never felt there's a paradox between being interested in the lives of public servants, police and the army. And because I think there'll always be police and there'll always be army and there'll always be wars and there'll always be prison, and there'll always be crime and there'll never be a sort of Marxist utopia in the sunny uplands that we're able to get to after some rupture or, or, or revolutionary event. I'm quite at home in talking about these things. So I, I don't think I ever felt as great a conflict there as you might. I mean, my oh, mother was I, I'm a nurse with an air hostess, but my dad was in the army and my yeah, grandfather was in the army as well. I'm, I just, I'm, I'm kind of over-egging it a bit. My, my, yeah, my, yeah. Like my parents are both Navy people. My, yeah, of course, in the services yeah. too, yeah. Yeah, so it's not like I don't, I don't know of this world. Or no, I mean, they're not. Well, again, I mean, you're... You know, you rebelled against the background that you're still informed by, if 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 not still in the grip of, I suppose. Um, but I have um, family in the police force, um, and you know, all sorts of people related to me doing things that I would neither do myself, nor necessarily politically approve of. But I wanted to write this story. I mean, you know, you, as you know, the first line is, I always wanted to be a writer, but I became a policeman instead. Yeah. And I wanted to write this from the first person as if I had become, from the point of view of me, if I hadn't actually become me, that if at a certain point in my early 20s, my uh, emotional development had stopped and that I felt rules were something to adhere to and hide behind rather than pay no attention to at all. So it's kind of an alternative autobiographical memoir um, written by someone that I could have been that doesn't actually exist, that I can still reference and look to myself for clues, clues of. Mm. Um, 
But to your original point, Gareth, I've never felt divorced from the kind of themes or interests that are politically antithetical to my overall worldview. I feel like there's almost space and room for them in that worldview. Um, so I, I don't keenly feel a contradiction there. Yeah, cool, good. Yeah, it's, um, like I say, it, it, it's not that I, uh, how to phrase mm. this, it's not that, um, you know, I pick, I, I watch something like The Wire, which is a very yeah. entertaining TV show, and I think, mm. well, on day revolution comes, I'm going to hang McNulty. <laughs> so, I think there is a bit where he actually says that he voted for George Bush, the other guy who calls him in one of them. Yeah. And his, his, his liberal journalist girlfriend just despairs and rolls her eyes. <laughs> but no, I, I take your point. Um, you know, the, it's not, none, it isn't morally beyond the pale. Hmm. Yeah. It's not like you're writing a, a book about a, a child trafficking ring that are all... But um, this is basically a coded people. apology for. No. <laughs> but, and kind of moving on from there, Mm. Um, you know, you, you did, like you've said, this is a political. This is a very political novel. Yeah, it's ground. It's grounded in something that you know you could go and visit a, a town like this. It's not a far out fantasy. It's not no. Detroit in RoboCop or anything. It and absolutely not. In fact, when I, I mean, there is a specific place that this is set. You know that I use as my setting. But every time I get off the train from London and I get onto this street that I have fictionalized. Ever since finishing the book, I've wondered, well, do you know, have, have I handed up a bit? Have I been a little bit harsh here? And just, you know, walking down that street for a couple of minutes tells me I haven't. And <laughs> yeah. if anything, I, I failed to do justice to its full colorful severity. Oh yeah, the, these English little towns are full of like, a bunch of weirdos. Yeah, oh, no yeah. doubt easily equal to anything I saw growing up in London. Mm, um, it's, no, I mean, moving to the countryside, I'm not pretending I had a sheltered life. I grew up in Paddington in central London. But, you know, the countryside knows how to raise the bar, and I don't think in any way is inferior in terms of just sheer bloody weirdness to what you'll find in inner cities or more supposedly culturally febrile places. Mm. Yeah, and that, and that weirdness is kind of the the question here. Like, why ha why have the occult stuff in there? This is not like an accusation. It's not like I think it was a bad yeah. idea. I don't. I think it was a very good idea. But uh, mm -hmm. I just wanted to get your your ideas about like why why make the um, why make there be any supernatural elements? So, we, mm -hmm. real life there are rich people who do steal children. Jeffrey mm -hmm. Epstein, for example. Like, um, like that was well, I mean, Jeffrey Epstein has hardly been keeping a low profile in the <laughs> you know international press. Yeah, why introduce the supernatural angle? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I guess. I think this was a story that demanded that I should. Um, but it's also a, you know it reflects my my view of reality. I mean, I'm sat in a new build glass box in Wiltshire, and I'm looking out at a thing called Gallows Hill. Um, which actually exists, and I'm looking at it right now, Gareth, as I'm speaking <laughs> to you, you know, co covered in a cold mist. 
And when I walk up there, um, which, you know, I don't do for fun all the time, but if I walk there or Grim Ditch, which is what leads up to there or any of these places, I stand around these trees, which we used as hanging trees, and I know what it's like to feel physically scared outside. Now, I've felt scared in the dark as a child of the unknown, but here in broad daylight, I can stand there and experience dead air and a chill that goes past a feeling that there are practical and real dangers in life, horrible as they are, and speaks to something greater than those. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I want, I know I wanted to write a book about other dimensions that coexist in this dimension that we live in and, you know, regard as dominant reality, um, inform this dimension, but are only, that we're only partially able to see until we move into realms like the occult or, or religious mysticism or drugs. And it, drugs are a huge part of this, natural drug that grows out of the earth that allows you to see past this life into a transcendental beyond. So writing that kind of book, it was always going to be difficult if I was just going to restrict myself to the real life villains, of which, of course, there are many. And this isn't a book that lets them off the hook, but it isn't just about that. So you can see from a hardcore communist position, I'm a real Robinson Crusoe figure. Um, I'm not a materialist. And this wasn't, this obviously is not a book that in any way is compatible with a straight materialist reading of reality. However much, you know, I might agree with it in certain respects. I feel like it's got its limitations. Yeah, and so how, how do you square that, like, mm. materialism and a kind of and a leftist, like a non-utopian leftist worldview? Mm. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't see there being, again, I mean, I, rather like what I was saying in answer to your other question, I don't see why, say, existing or believing in the existence of the soul rather than some sort of physically reductionist or eliminate, eliminativist position ought to lead you into the politics of the far right or, you know, of, um, I don't know, folk fascism or Christian nationalism or anything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that seems to, to believe in the existence of the soul and to think that materialism is only a partial explanation of reality and not a complete one doesn't seem to me to lead to some hard and fast political position that you would associate with the right. Um, I can still believe in everything that I think, you know, um, coming from a left-wing point of view, without feeling as though that is undermined in any way by me having um, what I suppose some people on you know, the, the left would say is almost a magical view of reality that they think is unsubstantial or somehow bogus. I don't. I feel this way because life compels me to. It has the best explanatory power for me, um, as does aspects of materialism, but not on their own. You know, mm. I suggest you get Graham Jones, one of our authors, on who's got a book called Red Enlightenment coming out next year that doubles down and is solely on this, this very topic. Mm, I think I've heard of that, yeah. I've heard of Graham Jones. Um, 
you know, it, it's it's always been a something we've talked about on the show before. Yeah. This tension between a strict materialist view and, I mean, frankly, anyone who's done any sort of psychedelic drugs kind of knows that the strict eliminative materialist view is kind of hope. It's is rather focused. narrow because you've yeah. got to explain back everything you've experienced to something yeah. else, really. And yeah, I'd like, rather stick with the evidence of my senses. Yeah, I mean, even the, like, back in uh, Sherborne, being a bored teenager and experimenting yeah. with every chemical short of bleach, there were, pl- <laughs> there were plenty of um, things I experienced on that, me and my friends, that are literally unexplainable. Like, um, both having the same hallucination at the same time. Like, mm. there, was a, there was a time when me and a friend had both taken, like, a heroic dose of mushrooms. Mm. I and mean, we were sitting in his back garden at night, looking out of his garden, and we're both like, oh, my God, look at that, at the same time. And mm-hmm. then we said, okay, let, instead of saying out loud what we think, let's both write down on post-it notes what we what we see in your garden. Right, like and good materialists. Go yeah, follow follow the evidence. Scientists. Yeah, yeah. we've got to uh, prepare this for peer review. <laughs> and um, so we both wrote wrote it down. I gave each other the notes, and it both uh, said a tiger. Okay. <laughs> and did you, Gareth? Let me ask you. And I'll, having done that, did you then think, "Oh my God, Margaret Thatcher was right about everything"? Uh, uh, it's not. It's not the corollary, is it? Is no, it? no, it, it doesn't. I mean, yeah, so I think there's room. I think there's room for it all. Hmm. It's just that you know, especially in this country, but there seems to be this war against what's seen as new age fluff on one side and proper hardcore number crunchy materialist, you know, sort of worldview on the other. Mm. And I just don't believe in that oppositional think it's particularly fruitful or that it bears up to most people's rich and involved sensuous life experience. Yeah. And there has to be a, <laughs> going to do a pun on the book here, a balance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Like I've met some like mm. hippie druid types who are utterly useless to any kind of politics. Oh, of course, you know they absolutely are, and you'll meet some very earnest, worthy, poli- politically minded people who are absolutely useless for any kind of decent conversation or oh, appreciation yeah. of the finer points of life yeah. outside and, campaigning. You know, and generally pretty useless to politics too because they mm. get caught up in their little lanes. They can only yeah, explain yeah. things in terms of the rage function of the means of production they can't talk to another human being yeah. um yeah not particularly useful on the doorstep <laughs> no they're not um so let's just uh, break for some music right now yeah because you know in addition to drugs music is the thing that um expands our minds brings us together and so on how um, are you are so I, and music is a, a part of a big part of the book too but I, I'm guessing this this band is probably not the kind of like nice hippie folk band that um, would go well in the book because they're. Uh... What are you talking about, nice hippie folk band? There are no nice hippie folk bands in the uh, book. I, I guess there's, yeah, a, I guess there's a version of a kind of acid Hawkwing, but yeah. you know that, that's neither nice or really very hippie. That's prototype yeah. punk. I mean, the, this, the band I'm about to play are. Well, they're beyond punk. They're kind of they're very tough hardcore, and mm. they're an act called the Hers Collective out of the US. Don't know them, but I'll, 
looking forward to hearing this. <laughs> uh, you'll have to listen to the episode because I'm not, I, I can't like. Oh, okay, I'm not going to be able to hear no, in real time. I, no. All right. But, uh, you, you have to listen to that. I'll just go on Spotify. Um, do you remember the band Garbage? Of course, um, yeah. yeah. And so, one of the, the singer of that used to be in a band with the Big John from The Exploited as well. If we're really right, playing yeah. rock, yeah, yeah, she's great. Yeah, uh, Shirley Manson, who is on yeah. the track I'm about to play. Oh, right. she, yeah. Uh, yeah, she's got like proper punk cred. She's also a good actress. She was in a mm. Terminator TV show a, a while back. It was actually quite. She was good in that. Um, mm. But she's in this band. So the Hers Collective is like this um, queer collective that brings in all like guests from all different, all right. um, like various other acts. They're just they're very brilliant. Um, they haven't released much since two thousand eighteen. Uh, they're just got a just bought a single out with Shirley Manson, which is called "We're Still Here," which is again kind of apt. Um, it's only two minutes long. Um, we're going to drop it in right now. Then we're going to come back and talk about more stuff about this book and 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 about I think I want to talk about repeater books and like this whole giant world you've created because it's like you keep putting out just classic after classic and i wonder uh, that's why. very good of you <laughs> but um first let's let's drop in this music so this is hers collective with we're still here feet uh shirley manson let me go quiet for a second just so i can see the silent bit on the recording <laughs> with we're still here 
feet, Shirley Manson um, and AC Sapphire. I don't know who they are, unfortunately, but uh, I'm sure they're amazing. But um, yeah, so we're on with uh, Tariq Goddard, uh, right of High John the Conqueror and many other fine books, uh, which I'm sorry to say I haven't read, uh, and also publisher of Repeater Books, which is, you know, the, the, the goat, the greatest of all time. Um, and yeah, so um, we meant, we talked about the politics of the book last yeah. time, or we mentioned it at least. Mm. I know this is massively putting you on the spot, even worse than the elevator pitch thing. But you know, I wish you'd given me a moment's notice, <laughs> but go on then, now that but, I'm here. But what are the politics of the book? I know, it's a horrible question. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're definitely asking me to lay out my market stall. I would yeah. say oh. the politics of the book are um, prag revolutionary pragmatism, democratic socialism, that, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. rather than your uh, standard Leninist or kind of... Uh, far uh, far left or anarchist position. It's okay. So kind, it, there's a, yeah, there's a very sort of rootedness to them about what's going to happen in the next few weeks, rather than an ideal state of reality where judging each day by and judging each day harshly by because it hasn't attained those heights. So yeah. it's I don't know. I, I suppose my Writing and creating convincing human characters that are believable, my imagination can only really take me as far as that democratic socialist position. Maybe radical democratic socialist, or I mean, it's not saying that I don't think there should be revolutionary change, but I can't write sort of didactic political positions and then give them a name and a political crusade and expect the story to not suffer, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Sure. I, I have to say, though, that's never a question I've asked myself as I'm writing a book. Mm, but I no, think I if somebody came much. away with that view, they wouldn't be completely wrong. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the politics always flows naturally. It's not a, something you write down... You write down a manifesto for your book, then try and figure out how to tell it in a and Yeah, the characters in, in this book. are rebellious people with misgivings mm. about the system. They're not revolutionaries who mm. are looking yeah. to take the system down and install a new, you know, hitherto almost unimaginable state of affairs that we'll all, you know, live under. It's, it, you know, it's very... It's very much rooted in a recognisable reality rather than as a novel as a theoretical formulation. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, I'm not sure very many people are going to... I've done quite a few interviews for this mm -hmm. and nobody has asked me that yet. Well, maybe it's a dumb question, that's why. Not at all, no. It's... But, um, not at all. Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> I don't know, is that a satisfactory response? Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, half the questions I ask are mm. one foot in the kind of devil's advocate position anyway. Yeah. Because sometimes I kind of will know roughly what you're going to be saying because it's a sensible idea. Mm. But that's where the, um, that's where you can just kind of spin off from. Mm. And that's, uh, yeah. 
you can kind of build a little foundation out of a base, like a basic or even a dumb question. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, kind of muddling through the every day and trying to make things as good as they can get without you know, breaking them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's that kind of leads us back to the, the early question about the about why 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 police shows and army shows and spy dramas and so on because yeah I think all... I also you know I appreciate there's an element of controversy for a, a writer coming from the left choosing their or you know his heroes in in, in the book to be police officers um Although the, the villains in the book are police officers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and definitely. there's a critique of power and authority in the book, but it isn't the Marxist critique of the state. It's something else. No, it's it's more emotional. It's about yeah. people. Which, um, you know, I mean, you're, you're the guy we mentioned earlier who can only talk in theory would call that mm. idealism and counter-revolutionary and the kind of, all the nonsense that turns everyone off. Yeah, but what you know? Where, where's that guy's book? What's his novel? When has that ever, ever worked yeah. as fiction? Yeah. You know? I can think of a couple of exceptions to that. Um, Sholokov, Mikhail Sholokov, wrote a book called Virgin Soil Upturned, which is extremely partisan and programmatic defense of collectivization. But he is too good at characters for that to spoil the the story. But do people actually experience reality in the political terms that the kind of person, maybe a straw man, you know, that we're setting up believes, you know, can, can fiction work like that? Can literature work like that? Can any entertainment work like that? Can jokes work like that? Can ordinary human interaction work at that level? No. All that yeah. can work at that yeah. level is a certain kind of dialogue you have with someone that's also like that, <laughs> in my experience, at least. Yeah. Yeah, it, it... But, you know, I mean, I'm an editor and a publisher, and I've published people whose politics are so far to the left of mine that, you know, they're kind of like primitive man or extreme noise terror and I'm like take that to bed you know <laughs> but I want and believe those books and those views should be out there because it's not as if we have too much of that in this yeah. world but that isn't my own political position or my view of literature or, or how it can work and, and succeed in creating a believable world that's as intense and as credible as the reality we actually inhabit yeah, also um, my characters in this book even the you know even the corrupt police officers and you know the it's a book about corruption as well and the way that maybe James Elroy or David Peace you know or you know Polanski's Chinatown corruption is also the background to this book and mm-hmm. the corrupting power of money and influence in class but even the worst characters in this book at some point began doing what they were doing because they wanted to help people yeah, you know, I mean, and that 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 makes it interesting. I think it does, um, yeah. it's certainly not a defence of the you know the state apparatus. Mm. It was just the most interesting place. I wanted to place a, a broader political, but not just political discussion that would grow out of the story I told. Mm. Yeah, I, easily my favourite character in the book was um, 
I've completely blanked on his name. By That's way. all right. The, I forgot. Um, yeah. The, the kind of corrupt, racist, Brexit loving cop. Oh, yeah. Christopherson. Max Christopherson. Was it? No, uh, uh, no, it wasn't Christopherson. It was oh, no, no, no. Christ- Christ- Jesus. Christopherson We've got Orange. 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 Yeah. Orange, yeah. No, I'm. Yeah. I'm doing it myself now, <laughs> mixing never, it all I up in my own mind. Yeah, Orange. Maybe remember the narrator's name of the book. Uh, I can never remember names of books. Terror. But uh, yeah, yeah. Or- Orange, uh, Max Orange. Mm. Yeah, he, he's. I've met him many times and in many exactly. incarnations yeah, since I'm, I moved to this area. My dad, actually. Um, your dad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, your dad's. Um, I. Hope, I if your dad is still alive, I hope he's not listening, or at least he doesn't read my book. <laughs> um, I think he'd quite like the book. Actually, I was going to say there are a, a true Orage would read Orage and see it as a proper tribute. Hmm. So may may not even mind. There yeah. is an ambivalence in the way I tell it, though. You know, certainly, um, he's certainly not a villain to himself until the very oh, end, yes, where he realizes he's failed in his his duties. Hmm. Yeah, I mean he. Yeah, he he does horrible things for yeah. very very human reasons. Mm. I mean, like he he's never mustache twirling villain at all. Even the the one guy who I'm not going to tell people who he is, but the one guy who you could see as a mustache twirling villain has, is evil. Yeah, yeah, he he does evil things, but is mm. it an evil or are they the sum total of uh, the evil acts they commit? Mm. Um, I think I'm probably suggesting there is such a thing. There is such a force in the universe, is irreducible evil, that people partake in that always ends up being a little bit inexplicable when you try and analyse and understand how or why it happened. Yeah. The, like, um, Which it, in itself isn't a very Marxist thing no, to believe or say. Although uh, Terry Eagleton, who has yeah, died in uh, New yeah. York, of course, he wrote a very good book on evil and pretty much said the same things. Really? Okay, I haven't read that. Yeah, it's just called On Evil. All right, um, no, well, I'll remember that one at least. It's um, Yeah, he, he does talk about how it, there's, there's, there's something a bit extra about I, I think Eagleton has actually a much more nuanced view of yeah, things than good. people might imagine yeah, from yeah. some of his work. Yeah, he, he's generally very good. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, he he talks about how there's always something just a little bit extra. There uh, has to be really, yeah. Just slightly like, did you need to go that far? Mm. That's the same with with Orange and same with the other evil person in the book. Mm. It's mm. like, did you need to do all of this? Or was there yes, exactly right? A bit too much, a bit little bit from outside. outside well, it's like something direction. these people are possessed by. Yeah. And then become strangers to themselves, like you are when you lose your temper or something. Hmm. Yeah, you, know? you can see why why ancient people came up with the idea of demons and possession. For the uh, explanatory cause... power, yeah. Because yeah. it just there needs to be something that, to explain that generally rational people who seek the who seek good for themselves will on occasion do things out of just pure that seem to be beyond from beyond. Well, I completely agree with that. What you just said, apart from the generally rational bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, my fourth novel, "The Picture of Contented New Wealth," which is set around a demonic possession, hmm. does does riff on many of these things. Yeah, I want to read that. I, I I love demonic possession books as well. <laughs> okay, well, um, right to um. Well, we can definitely send you a copy. Okay. Oh, that's you don't need to go out and buy it. I'm sure, I can I can find it, but. Uh, 
Um, I do want to talk about just sort of round out the show, just yeah, in general, just because I have you here and you've, yeah, yeah, like your name's in the inside flap of half the books on my shelf. Um, mm. So I, I probably think most of the people who listen to this show are going to know what Repeater Books is and know it's it's rough mm. story, but can you just um, just talk a little bit about Repeater and where it came from and what its kind of ethos is and, and just kind of roughly what you Yeah, thought. okay. Um, well, we're a small to medium-sized publisher that I'm happy to say are able to punch well above our weight um, and, and, and have a reach that goes beyond our milieu. Um, Repeater Books grew out of zero books, um, which was where we originally were although we've got zero books back now, so there's the two of them. But as an, you know, we're looking to build an independent publishing company that wrote in a very popular and direct way about politics and culture and history that more or less conformed to our, and by our, I mean the, the small group of people that I started this with, to our view of taste so in the crudest possible sense, we weren't either journalistic or um, academic. We were looking for a kind of rock and roll take on the subjects we liked and on subjects that nominally no mainstream publisher would touch, but also a certain kind of approach that was comfortable in its own difference, in its own weirdness even, that was certainly something that would never have been published in mainstream publishing when we started. And I think even though mainstream publishing has moved much closer to our model and the sort of books we bring out, by and large, still wouldn't go for most of our authors, not until we've already bought a book out by them and shown that they can succeed. Then, of course, they'll come and poach them. (laughs) But certainly not in the first place. That's a little bit vague, but... I know this is not what I mean. No, it's 100%. There's a a lot of people I know whose first books have been on repeater because you've taken a chance on them. Yeah. Well, Um, it's in a sense, how are you going to compete against the monolith, corporate monolith of mainstream publishing? And one of, I mean, I had my, you know, I've been writing for about 25 years novels, and my first novel actually came out just over 20 years ago, with a mainstream publisher. And I learned that publishers are very, very risk-averse people Mm, and definitely indulge in what you can only charitably describe as imitative, if not lemming-like, behaviour. So generally, if they like something, they all like something. And if one, you know, there's a big buzz around an auction and everyone's bidding and now everyone comes in with with a new offer. And if they don't like something and they pass, pretty soon you see that they all do that. You know, none none of them are going to go there. So it becomes very hard to break into that if you're doing something that doesn't appeal to the the radar, the collective unconscious of, you know, the, the, the powerful publishers in the main houses. And... The best way, I I mean, part of the motivation for starting was to get people into print that otherwise would never be into print, you know, never get there. 
But one of the ways we can survive is, of course, by taking risks based primarily on our taste and also maybe on some market experience. The bigger publishers wouldn't and don't. And to that sense, we're a bit of a talent scouting agency because the only way we're going to keep a fresh production line of authors coming in is by finding those first books that other people either won't take or don't recognize as worth taking. Yeah. I, one of the things that like shocked me, because like, I've worked in publishing before. And one of the things that oh, was yeah. like, oh my God, how are they, are they doing this? Mm. Was you actually have on your website a place where people can submit their manuscripts to you. <laughs> the because online of, submission was one of the big things with zero as well that we've yeah, kept doing. Yeah. 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 Like, no one does that. Um, even literary agents who are the people you're supposed, I'm doing the air quotes thing here, mm. supposed to send your manuscripts to, they don't even do an online submission. Well, they're the supposed guardians of taste, but yeah. I have for a while felt like there are rather, there are some great agents out there, mm. I hope to say, but to me, they're a bit of an extraneous wheel in the machine. Yeah. I, I'm, Unless, of course, I mean, you're enormous and really, really, big and you want someone to negotiate an extra million for a 10 book deal or something. But for most mm. authors at the level we're working at, I don't think they bring too much to the party. No, no. I, I, if you're, yeah, if, if you're mid-list and like the vast majority of people are going to be. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're not going to need a, a film deal or merchandise. Unfortunately, deal. there isn't enough money in it. No. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of been the major problem with publishing the moment for well, the middle list always keeps years. getting squeezed and it's happening again unfortunately yeah it's um if you um, walk into your Walterstones, what are you going to find there anything that you wouldn't find in the book section of tesco's well maybe a bit you know mm. stuff from the the history of literature but it's very very di- it's sadly probably about as difficult to get or book into print if you're not obeying the conventions and tropes of what happens to be in fashion at the moment, it's difficult to do now as it was when we started Zero in 2008, nine. Mm. Um, yeah. Which, you know, is certainly no cause for crowing from my point of view, far from it. I wish things had changed more, but it does mean that there is at least still room for what we do and mm. need. Yeah, I mean, one of the great things about repeater is you don't, you don't, you guys don't have a mid list. There are no like big repeater books of the year and a bunch of like lesser titles. Books. Yeah, I mean, some books okay. do do much better than others. Yeah, of course, it's, um, it's natural, isn't you it? Know, but you, um, we, but we, we don't. I mean, we're not going to take an author on simply to fill up space in the catalogue, hmm. knowing yeah. full well that that whole year. Every, you know, there, there is really only one title we're going for and everybody else is there just to make up numbers. You know, we'll yeah. try and treat everyone with the same regard and put the same resources behind them. Yeah, that's something that you don't, you don't get at normal publishers. You'd get a... I absolutely a, agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> like I worked at Random House when, um, what's it called? Fifty Shades of Grey came out. Okay, yeah. And everything was about Fifty Shades of Grey for that year. Of course. And everything else, no matter if it was Robbie Williams's biography mm. or a cookbook or just a, a, a good literary novel, was just you just nothing. had to take the bullet yeah. for the team, yeah. Yeah, they were just, yeah. 
yeah, they would just sacrifice to get Fifty Shades over the line. Even though Fifty Shades didn't need didn't the help. marketing because it was um, it was word of mouth, it was pure word of mouth success. Which is rather ironic, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Uh, and yet they they sunk all their money in just to squeeze a bit more juice out of this. Of land. course. Well, there's nothing like working in publishing for a little bit to oh, um, yeah, um, lose faith in its supposed aims. Yeah, you really get to see how the sausage is made. And um, it's not good. No, hard, hard to walk away from that. Not disenchanted, I should think. Yeah, I know. That's um, yeah, and yeah, literary um, literary agencies aren't that much better. Um, being, well, they're all like, hand in hand, and I'm sure it's only a matter of time before Penguin Random House. And um, I should watch what I'm saying here. I've already upset <laughs> the communists. Now I'm upsetting the agents. Now Penguin Random House, who do do our distribution. And sales and marketing worldwide. <laughs> so I should watch what I say here. But, you know, it's probably only a matter of time before they merge with Amazon's book arm, you know, hmm. and squash and take even more air out of the room. Yeah. It's the tendency towards monopoly, unfortunately. Hmm. And speaking of mergers and acquisitions here, yeah. like, so I don't want, like, all the hot goss about what happened behind the scenes, but um, sure. so Zero Books, which... Hmm. Uh, yourself, um, Mark Fisher, and um, some various other people started yeah. way back in the day, put out some in- insanely brilliant books. That Thank I, you. I know no one who doesn't have a copy of Capitalist Realism. I've, I've lent out like three copies. I keep oh, well, there's a new edition that's come <laughs> out seen, yeah. about a week ago, I think, um, and, where there's um new forward from Zoe, Mark's widow, Alex Niven, who came on, he wasn't part of the first wave, but came on as an editor at Zero. Yeah, and, and it's um, repeated too. And I, I did the afterward, yeah. Yeah, I keep forgetting the name of his book. Um, his really brilliant. Alex New Model Lee. Island, yeah. Folk Opposition. Brilliant, brilliant book. Yeah. Um, so, mm. and I'm not going to you know, go into the, the gossip here, but sure. Zero Books. Got away from you, and repeater was started to continue mm. its mission, and now yeah. it's back. So, mm. how how is that going to work? Is it, are they just going to keep doing their things in parallel? Well, I haven't actually spoken about this in public. No, but you don't have to if it's if it's. It was like, a bit of a bringing getting zero books back was a bit of a surprise because the guy that owned it, who we essentially we who gave us. We set it up, and he had the parent company that we distributed through. So when we were got rid of, he was able to hang on, hang on to the books, um, and that you know the company was his. Um, when he decided that he didn't want it anymore and was going to sell it, we were informed and were rather caught off guard because we had started. Repeater to replace or carry on doing what Zero was doing. Um, so there was a kind of conflict there. What you know, we wanted to buy it back, of course, get the rights back to those titles. And you know, we were concerned about what might happen if we sold it to a major conglomerate as well. So we got it back to be on the safe side rather than finishing off what we'd started or some vendetta against him and the person he bought into run it in our absence, but we didn't know what we were going to do with it. 
And what we have decided to do so that it has a kind of clear brief is we've brought in different editors to start their own collections. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's four of those. And they're going to be books that are either more um, marginal than the ones we do with Repeater, because we only do two every month with Repeater. And they've both got to be mainstream successes or else we'll go bust. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we've always got to, at least in theory, make sure a Repeater book's got a chance of cutting it at Barnes & Noble or WH Smith's. Whereas with the Zero books, we're going to take more of a risk. can be more esoteric, more out there. Or because they're not going to have the same run-in times that we have, they can be more contemporaneous interventions in something that's happening right now, you know, like how Zero was designed to be to start with, writing about stuff that's right in the news. And there's going to be four collections doing that. And we're also going to get the classics and bestsellers in the, um, in the back catalogue and bring out new, new shiny editions of those with new forwards and um, updates and that kind of thing. So I think that's the medium and long-term future for Zero, whereas re- repeatable carry on as it is. Hmm. No, that, seems, that seems cool. That, like, that seems like a good idea Dave. they both fulfill their function. I think, there's, I think there could be room for them both, providing they've got slightly different brief. Hmm. Um, and I also, you know, expect, I mean, there are really good publishers going bust all the time now. Um, so the, the, the room and the need is still there. I mean, there was a period about six, seven years ago where you would walk into a bookshop and every book looked like a zero book or a repeater book. And I thought, well, look, the major publishing companies are getting it now which is good in a way, but in another way, this is really going to bring a lot more pressure on us. Um, But they don't seem to have gone that way or embraced it. You know, with the rising price of paper and the cost of living crisis, they are definitely reverting to their uber-conservative ways with a vengeance. So Mm -hmm. I think there is is space for a a zero and a repeater, providing we've got a clear idea of where we differ. Mm, Yeah. One of the things about... Zero back in the day was it was like the books were supposed to be inexpensive. They were, but they all sorts of fell to pieces and the paper <laughs> curled. Yeah, that's why I keep giving them away. I can't. I don't want to have a rot. <laughs> well, they compost them. very easily. <laughs> yeah, the, the, like you don't put out like a thick, chunky hardcover with a bunch of embossing on it that's gonna <laughs> give you microplastic. I think, you know, with the, with the early zero titles, our mission drive really was to release as much. At the very beginning, they were very carefully curated. And we then moved to an opposite extreme where we were looking to release as much by as many people as possible. Um, And we found that that probably wasn't the best way to go. So we paired that back a bit. And then when we started Repeater, we were looking to do fewer titles and completely get behind the few that we did with better production values, better quality paper, being able to spend more time on marketing and sales and publicity, all of that. So in some ways we were taking our early model and marrying it to the best aspects of the conventional existing model. Um, But given that zero is almost its own genre, we'll still be looking to keep costs down and prices down as much as we can 
and take as big a risk as we're able to with, with titles there. And I think there's four collections, Zero Agri, Zero Tribune, um, Zero Borders and Zero Utopia with four different editors who are commissioning at the moment and there should be new titles from those series coming out as of next year. Awesome. Yeah, one of the things I noticed during uh, Zero's um, wild years... You mean was... when we weren't in charge? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- there was... Like some of the books were just sloppily copy edited. Yeah. Like well, when we started to be, I don't particularly want to be fair for the person that came in after us, but for the sake of honesty, when we started, we, the books were produced at great speed um, and they were not carefully edited or copy edited. And that was something that we realized was a weakness and looked to correct. But no, I mean, in both the type of title that happened in what you would describe as the wilderness years, a lot of those books, I think, not all of them by any means. There were some very good books that came out then too, but they did move more towards the sensationalist and Punch and Judy confrontational. Mm. And there was no care taken in editing. We've, you know, it's... It, now we're correcting books that were done then and editing and copy editing and proofing. And they, they were just put straight into production. That wasn't yeah. the side of things that interested the person that they parachuted in. Mm, yeah. So I don't want to um, start uh, spilling the tea here. But, um, yeah, it's a sidetrack, isn't it? It's a sidetrack. <laughs> but, you know, the first drafts of my books um, involve a hell of a lot of copy editing and proofreading too. I'm only barely legible, you know, to my to myself. So it's one some of the things that conventional publishers do are there for a reason. Mm, and yeah. um painstaking editing is one of those. But um so just to round off round off the show here, yeah. um, what can we expect from from repeater books in the next and, and maybe zero books in the next uh six months in the next in the near future? Well, here's your, here's your, here's your uh, bit to just pitch us. Yeah, I, I've got to be careful because I'll forget people. And as publisher, I don't want to be in a position where I'm um, picking favourites. So I, I, I would ask to anyone listening who's interested, please just go to our websites and see what you like there. Um, but as I say, with Zero, we'll be doing these new collections. We'll also be bringing out some of the other classics, best-selling books, including the Eugene Thacker trilogy um, oh, that began with In the Dust of This Planet, David okay. Stubbs, Why Do People Get Rothko and Not, Stockhausen. Um, we'll be bringing out Chris O'Leary's, again, um, collection on Bowie. He went and did his second one of those with Repeater, so that will become a single book. With Repeater, um, there is an excellent book coming out in January, I think, um, called A Nation of Shopkeepers by Dan Evans on the revolutionary power of the bourgeoisie um, or why they are perhaps the most politically influential class still and also a new categorization of who is and who belongs in the bourgeois. Um, And as I mentioned to you earlier, I edited this book very keen on it, Graham Jones' Red Enlightenment, um, on Marxist spirituality. 
and a book by a young woman called Alice Capel, who has a huge YouTube following on feminism as well, which is due in um, very soon. And also one by the Acid Horizon team, um, who are the public face of the Zero Repeating YouTube channels, who they've yep. got a theoretical coming out of this. Yeah, they, they they even had me on their podcast on their podcast at one point. So have you been on since we I, took over the YouTube channel then? Uh yeah. Um, so I have trouble keeping up. <laughs> I, but, uh, yeah, we'll talk uh, about that in a bit, and I I will try and catch up. Oh, don't uh, don't don't. But uh, you got like zero repeat to put out a hell of a lot of content. I wouldn't even expect the publisher to. It's it's a little but, bit difficult. Otherwise, I'd have no time for going toe-to-toe with the classics or watching or doing anything else, actually. <laughs> um, but I, I do read everything we bring out, so there is that, at least. Yeah. I think I read everything you bring out. Um, <laughs> okay. But, well, thank you. Yeah, but... Um, so, yeah, uh, folks at home, um, Hydron the Conqueror is a very, very good book, and even though I've kind of talked it up as being... Like about the southwest of England, which is probably not something the largely American audience is going to know about. The the structure is a is a police procedural mystery, and everyone knows that because that's the, like one of the most popular forms of fiction for the last hundred years or so. So you will get it, and you'll then be very pleasantly surprised by all the folk horror weirdness that you're going to. I think Americans that like um. The first series of True Detective will find oh, perfect, it's probably yeah. not a bad, you know, kind of reference yeah. point. Excellent, a Wiltshire yeah. French connection to that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, uh, I think Twin Peaks might have. A yes, it's there. got yeah. this that, the same unclassifiable yeah. fuck off weirdness. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Twin Peaks and True Detective. If you like those, then you're going to like this too. Uh, it is very good. Um, also. I shouldn't have to tell the audience for this kind of uh, podcast this, but everything repeated does is brilliant. Everything zero has, uh, does is also similarly brilliant. So do check out as much as you can. Um, we're going to round off the show with uh, a little a little song, um, Gentle Ditty uh, by a band called Dream Unending. Um, it's off an album called Songs of Salvation. Uh, these guys are one guy from the band Two Mold and one guy from Innumerable Forms, and this is this is a death metal, but it, kind of that kind of like slow, elegiac, cosmic kind of big sounding, not like gross slasher movie death metal. It, it's kind of like early Opeth, um, that kind of that kind of vibe. Um, they're still like doing the grrr singing, but they're, they're you know it, it sounds big and grand and majestic. Um, so we're going to play the second song off that album. It's called Secret Grief. Um, it's a little five-song uh, record, but um, capped off by like two big 14, 16-minute uh, tracks, which are just massive and huge. Um, do check it out. It's it's very it's good music to you know, vibe out in the countryside too. Elegant death metals just sounds like a brilliant <laughs> category. Could you? I want yeah. you to send me an email with. Your favourite elegant death metal oh, bands in there, so I can discover yeah, that. It's it's very the, people hear the, hear the term death metal and they purely think it's a bunch of dudes in cargo shorts going grower about uh, chainsawing cheerleaders in half. 
but um, there's there's some weird stuff. That sounds more like Slipknot, but yeah, some of the neurosis, um, some of the neurosis albums definitely informed the writing of High John the Conqueror early stages. Yeah, definitely. Um, I love love neurosis as a band. That the it turned out the singer has has been less than a nice person. Let's say is that right? The singer. Yeah, the, the, yeah, but uh, the the music they made is excellent. All right, that's another, another story. Okay, yeah, it's another one we got to put with uh, John Le Carre and people as in All bad right. people, great artists. Uh, but um, so yeah, we're gonna be back fairly shortly. Um, I'm gonna try and talk to a repeater writer named Philippa Snow about her book um, about cruelty and self harm and just. Which, as you know, usually means violence. That's another title that's hard to remember. <laughs> it is, and um, but it's a brilliant, brilliant book. Um, and we'll also be talking to um, I've forgotten his name now about the uh, Red Enlightenment book because that's Graham Jones. Graham Jones, yes. Um, and there will be uh, we'll also be talking about Alan Moore's um, short story collection because that's brilliant. Uh, Grant Morrison's. Uh, debut novel which is also brilliant and uh there'll be and langdon and eden will find some weird sci-fi story you've never heard of that turns out to be the greatest thing ever written because they do that every other week um but uh yeah folks go and get uh, a copy of high john the conqueror but on your way there you can listen to secret grief by dream and ending mm-hmm.